Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning on going into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, an internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. I'm Walker Red. Welcome back to Run the List. Today, I'm here with a good friend of mine and mentor in medicine. I know I can introduce how I first met Josh, which was on my very first clinical rotation as a resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, I was working at the oncology night float service, and Josh was my supervising resident. Among his many clinical strengths, his procedural both experience and sort of passion for it as a important part of internal medicine stood out. He took me under his wing, showed me a number of different procedures. It was really memorable for me. And so today we're getting together to talk about procedures. Before we jump into that, I just want to ask you, Josh, what's important to you? I want to hear a little bit about your story. Okay. I'm from California. I did basically everything in California before I came out here for a residency at Brigham. I went to college there. I went to medical school at University of California, San Francisco, and came here to the Brigham for residency, thinking I wanted to do nephrology. And then when I got here, I fell in love with cardiology, thought briefly about oncology, and now I'm a first-year cardiology fellow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been really looking forward to this, to talk about basically general principles of procedures in internal medicine. I kind of think about procedures falling into two general categories. There's vascular access, and then there's fluid sampling, either therapeutic or diagnostic. And both of these are incredibly important. Vascular access for delivering all the medications that we ordered and fluid sampling as a key component of our diagnostics for many, many different conditions that we take care of here in the hospital. Yeah, so many things we've already covered, clinical topics on Run the List, paracentesis, thoracentesis we're going to cover soon. Always the first branch point is what those studies show. All that being said, when you teach a new learner how you go about procedures, what are some of the key steps that you talk about? Yeah, basically five things, I think. One, I always run through the materials. So the first time I do a central line with anyone, there's often like a dud kit sitting around. Go through all the materials that you need, which are often highly specialized, designed just for doing that procedure, and make sure that you're aware of every step. What are the different materials that are needed and how do they work? There's about 10 different things you need for an ultrasound-guided IV. For a central line, there's like 20 or 30 things you need, and making sure that you're aware of all the materials I need and at what step they come into play. The second thing is positioning. I can't emphasize this enough. People always forget to position themselves and the patient for success in a procedure. When I'm doing anything on an arm, I raise the bed up, I splay the arm out to the side of the bed so that I have an open field to work on that arm to do whatever vascular access or procedures I need to do. Third basic principle is knowledge of how ultrasound works. Literally like how the ultrasound beam bounces off objects and how that can change the way you look at things is essential. Oftentimes we're putting needles into tissue, into either a vein, an artery, or into someone's back or belly. There's this thing that comes all the time. People are putting a needle into a vein. They have the ultrasound right over it and they can't see the needle tip. If you understand basic ultrasound principle that your beam needs to be perpendicular to your needle, then you will know at all times where your needle is. The so-called 
Law of perpendicularity. The law of perpendicularity. I'll add on as a kind of a corollary to that, or really probably a separate thing, is knowledge of anatomy. It's incredibly important. For ultrasound-guided IVs, I know where the major veins are in the arm. Obviously, for paracentesis, it's a little bit more obvious. Another basic principle, I think, before you go into any procedure is knowing what can go wrong. For central lines, there are really only three things that can cause major complications, for instance. Accessing the artery and how to avoid that. Losing your wire into the heart. Yes. Bad. Causing a pneumothorax. And I'll add my last basic fundamental principle onto this is setting the right ambiance. So you walk in, you're generally calm. And then also I always play music during all of my procedures. And I've actually, I think in like, you know, now hundreds of procedures I've done, I've only had one patient say no music, none at all, firm no. And that's okay. Yeah. That's like my general principles I I kind of enumerate for any procedure. Yeah. And actually the the other part I want to highlight is your demeanor meeting the patient if you're not taking care of them yourself or even if you are taking care of them yourself, just making sure they totally understand what's going to be happening. The fact that the lidocaine is going to hurt more than the actual needle. All those things, setting those expectations and reassuring patients who are understandably nervous, particularly when we're gouting up and doing sterile procedures. It's, a, it's and all very that. scary for patients. Yeah. And just to reiterate this point, when you do a procedure well and they feel taken care of, love it. I had this guy in the CCU yes. who had a massive heart attack and he had a GI bleed that we were kind of worried about. It looked like it was going to be a big GI bleed and we ended up, I put in a cordis, like this giant a vascular access into his neck that was like maybe a little bit over the top and he didn't end up bleeding at all and in the morning all he could do was point to the thing i put in his neck and said thank you you fixed me access is important important. it is so important yeah it's a great chance for us as internists we spend a lot of time rounding thinking but we also we can really provide tangible things even as an internal medicine intern resident it's really rewarding so just some others to round it out always making sure that the rest of the team it's good timing for them i find it very useful is to keep a checklist for each procedure on your phone in evernote or whatever you use to stay organized so you just know for each procedure everything you need to get so you don't need to go get it again Another big aspect of procedures is just practicing good sterility. It's warm under those gowns, but they are important. And it's always nice to have your colleagues also help make sure you're staying sterile. Always have a low threshold to start over, de-glove, de oh whatever you're touching, you need to You're do. touching a deep nerve here. Whenever I'm teaching someone to do a central line, yeah. the moment that they're laying out the drape on the patient, I get this deep, <laughs> deep anxiety. It's the place where they're most likely to break sterility. And I'm just watching their fingertips to brush against something. I am very particular about sterility. Yes. Yes, That's a great point. So the bottom line is, as a friend of mine says, the separation is in the preparation. You have to prepare, be ready to do it, and have the contingencies and know if you meet resistance with the wire, if things don't go as expected, what to think and what the next step is. And, and all that is like the, the yin and the yang of that. You got to go after these procedures because it's so easy to turf these to someone else who's more experienced or to the procedure service for the entire hospital now, IR. But yes. IR is not going to do your paracentesis in the middle of the night when you're trying to rule out SVP. SVP. So let's just, uh, now we've covered a lot of the principles, let's very briefly just run through a case. So let's say a woman, 52 years old, comes in. She has a history of IV drug use. She's known to have difficult access as well documented in her chart. She has decompensated cirrhosis and she has every problem you can imagine that needs a procedure. This is a little bit make-believe. So first thing that comes up, empiric antibiotics, got to get vascular access. To get an ultrasound-guided IV, 
Could you just touch on the concept in addition to the law of perpendicularity, your technique that you taught me, say a little bit about the tunnel technique. So for this one, I would say knowing your anatomy and where some secret veins are to go for these slightly deeper veins that you can target is really important. So at least at our hospital, the IVs are around 1.8 inches long, the long ones. They're longer than the standard IV, so you have to go find those. And then when you're targeting a vein, it usually can't be more than 1.5 centimeters deep. I'd say the absolute limit is 2 centimeters, but often that's changed by your compression of the tissue with the ultrasound itself, so they steam close than they actually are. So you alluded to the tunnel method. And we can put a diagram of this on the PDF we always release with episodes, but just to sort of take us through the concept behind it. Yeah. So talking about this, I would like to say I coined it, but I have to give credit where credit's due to (laughs) Haley Toon and Julia Beamsdurfer, so credit to them. But the tunnel method is essentially using your ultrasound to follow your needle tip into the vessel. You're going in with the needle at a steeper angle. You're getting into the vessel, and then you're sort of tracking the needle along with the catheter into the vessel so that you can track the entire needle into the vessel without ever sliding the catheter off, and then you just retract the needle and you're done. Tunnel method is really most valuable on ultrasound-guided IVs. When you're doing a central line, you can't really tunnel. When you're doing femoral or venous or arterial axis, you can't tunnel because it's too steep. Doing arterial lines by tunnel method is controversial. And so a cath lab cardiology attending will say never tunnel a needle without a wire ahead of it, but many people do tunnel arterial lines. Okay, in another procedure, this patient, of course, needs... Like every patient with ascites coming into the hospital, no matter what, for mortality benefit, needs a paracentesis. Just diagnostic at first, potentially therapeutic, but let's just focus on diagnostic for now. Maybe would have even been good to get in the ED or before antibiotics. But this is a procedure that's very important, one that people can shy away from sometimes, but really should be straightforward if you position the patient well. So Josh, I get the patient positioned and just have them tilt over towards me a little bit on the bed. So the ascites is towards me. I think about one inch or a few centimeters up from the anterior spine of the hip, medial and caudal. And I'm going to look with the ultrasound, but that should be far enough lateral away from the epigastric vessels. And in that nice pocket where the ascites sits. Yeah. Walker, I love it. That's a very scientific description (laughs) for your audience. Belly up, wherever the pocket is. Wherever the pocket is. Wherever the pocket is. And just know where the epigastric artery is. And then I just go wherever the money is. Wherever the biggest pocket is. Belly up, laying flat, music. Most important procedure for music, paracentesis, because you're sitting there for like 40 minutes afterwards, just draining the fluid. It's vital. You're chatting with the patient. You have a little music on in the background. Everything goes way better. A little bit of lidocaine at the skin. Don't need as much lidocaine at all in the sub-Q because it's not innervated. You need a lot of lidocaine at the peritoneum. It's very sensitive. So be very generous with lidocaine there once you're starting to get some ascites back. And then you go ahead and get whatever setup at your institution there is to pull large volume off if you need. And make sure you prioritize getting the 60cc or so sample of labs to send to the lab. The biggest thing with paracentesis, I've talked to many GI colleagues about this. Depending on what kit you have, it's very hard to hurt a patient with a paracentesis. We have these things called a safety centesis kit, which has this dull tip that retracts as you apply pressure. So when you hit the skin, the needle comes out. And then once you exit into the peritoneum, the dull tip comes back out. So difficult to hurt the patient. Don't put the needle into the liver. Don't hit the inferior epigastric. You're going to be fine. 
Just get the fluid. Not a reason to back away from it when a patient comes in overnight. You can do this procedure and you can get the cell count. Yeah. The other thing people talk about a lot is coagulopathy. What INR is okay? Thank you for bringing that up. I've seen case series. People say INR up to seven is okay. Any hepatologist will probably tell you. Yeah. Not to worry about it. It's not increased risk of bleeding. It's actually the mixed hyper and hypocoagulable state. Yes. Thoracentesis. The question yeah. I have for you is, is this one that's super dangerous, Josh? There are things you have to look out for, but this is one you can do well too, especially if you're using an ultrasound. So how do you think about positioning it being so key in this procedure? Walker, this is the procedure that we did together at like six in the morning before 7 a.m. sign out. Yeah. That was like... So you can make this happen. You can make this happen. And no procedure makes people feel better more quickly. No, they love it. Their breathing feels better. A majority of the time, it's a very safe procedure, yes. very hard to hurt people. The big thing that everyone's scared about doing is causing a pneumothorax. It depends on what kit you have at your hospital. Again, we use the same kit here for mm-hmm. the thoracentesis we do for paracentesis, and it's the safety synthesis kit. This is like an infomercial for them. But it has, besides just having the dull needle at the front, <laughs> it also has a one-way valve that prevents you from causing a pneumothorax. And I often use, I find the pocket, and then I mentally mark a freckle on their back as where the pocket is. And then the one thing that people always talk about you don't want to do is go under the rib. You need to go over the rib. Mm-hmm. And that's so you don't damage the artery. Yeah. So despite our valiant attempts, this patient with ascites, pleural effusions, difficult to access, oh, we no. did everything we could. Yeah. Right? You know where this is going. Yeah. They go to the ICU. You're so enthusiastic about teaching more procedures. You say, you know what? The ICU is slammed we can probably line this patient up too, which brings us to a couple of procedures we've already touched on. So we can just go over them briefly. An A-line, an arterial line. You can dynamically monitor the blood pressure. There's two different techniques. This is another controversial thing. I'm curious to hear what your take is. Okay. How do you think about it? Super controversial, especially now that I'm a cardiology fellow. When I was a resident, I ended up using ultrasound and tunneling all my um, arterial yes, lines in. Yes. The classic method you'll hear about is called the through and through, where you essentially take the needle, you go through the top of the artery, then you come out the bottom, and then you pull back your needle, and then you pull the catheter back slowly mm-hmm. until you see flow, then you thread a wire, and then you thread the catheter over the wire. One. Tunnel method is you don't even have to use a wire necessarily. You get into the vessel via ultrasound guidance, you angle it down, advance it a little bit, and then you can just slide the catheter over the needle straight into the artery. You're not going to make it through internal medicine residency without doing an arterial line. It's a great procedure, necessary very frequently in the ICU. We need to draw frequent ABGs and we need to monitor her blood pressure. So she gets an arterial line. She also probably needs a big IV in her neck. She does. Yes. The central line, it's the big one that everyone gets super excited about because it's a really important procedure. You put a big catheter in with multiple access points so you can basically give pressors and medicines that need to be given centrally, centrally and do so safely. Josh, it's a long procedure, as you mentioned, has about 30 parts that go into it. How would you kind of summarize the way you think about doing central lines? Yes, easy. Central lines are one of the easiest procedures that you can do. So what's difficult about central lines and what's intimidating is all the materials. Yes. There are many steps. You can't mess up the sterility. There's the wire. There's the dilator. How hard do you push on the dilator? How hard is too hard? But the essential procedure itself is just putting a needle into the internal jugular vein, threading a wire, dilating the vessel, and then putting in a central line. So for all you trainees out there, as you're going into it, I want you to feel reassured that this is a very easy procedure and spend your time preparing 
knowing the materials that go into it and knowing how each of them works. Because if you go in knowing that, um, when I when I teach people this and I lay out all the materials and we do a dry run before we actually do yeah. one, people feel extremely comfortable. It's actually very easy. That's a great segue. To boil it down to three things that we want our learners okay. and listeners to take away. One, I would say we've talked about a lot is preparation. Going through steps, getting the patient positioned, taking the time up front to save yourself time and headache when you're actually doing the procedure. I'd say another one, go after these procedures. Take yeah. the opportunity to do them. Don't turf things to IR. Do them. Do them yourself. Become comfortable. Your patients will get better care because of it. And let's bring it back to the patients for the last point. This is an opportunity to be at the bedside, show that you're willing to spend, or not willing, but want to spend an hour or two, if that's what it takes, doing something to help the patient. That presence of you being there will be huge. Educating the patient on it, making sure they feel comfortable, really going through the consent process, and then just being there will really improve patient care, I think. And it's one of the things that makes it really worthwhile. I love it. Uh, fourth thing we can't leave out. Yes. Always play music. Always play music. Always play yes, music. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to add the last thing. It's also an opportunity for you to bond with your interns when you become a resident. Teaching my interns how to go through a procedure has been one of the most valuable experiences in residency. And it's something that I think is very memorable experience. An intern comes in and there's this real fear built up around doing these invasive things for the first time, especially for us thinkers going into internal medicine. Yeah. For, for me, like the people who taught me I'll never forget those moments the first time I did these procedures and the people who taught them to me. Yeah, it's really meaningful. So, Josh, given the fact that this is how we met, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is awesome. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. I love being on the show with you. And I'm just so glad to be here hanging out with you. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks. Josh.